Well, let me begin by especially thanking everyone who made a Friday evening a possibility. I, I'll tell you, I've done many, many, many debates, and very rarely was the venue more perfectly suited. It was sort of intimate. You're not very far away, especially people sitting right up there. You know, uh, they're watching your notes, actually, uh, making sure you're saying everything correctly. Uh, it was really, really an enjoyable evening. I know that the Muslims who were here felt uh, welcomed and loved, and I think that's an important thing. Uh, had lunch with Adnan yesterday. Some people wonder, how do you all get along after something like that? Well, uh, the only thing that concerned me over lunch is we're sitting here and we're having this intense conversation and we're in a restaurant and I started getting a little nervous. What are the people around us thinking as they hear us talking about um, using all sorts of Arabic terms and things like that? I was, I was a little concerned about that, but other than that, we had a great time together um, and continue to pray for those that were there uh, that evening uh, and those who will see the, the recordings of these debates. Uh, not sure if that gentleman's here this evening, but I had a young man come up uh, right down here after the debate uh, who indicated that three years ago he was a Muslim, and it was through the instrumentality of the debates we've been doing that he came to know Jesus Christ. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to hear. Uh, it, it's, it's just the opportunities we have are, are tremendous. So continue to pray for those opportunities. I don't know how long we're going to have this type of freedom. Uh, to do debates like that, or especially to address this particular issue in many of the countries around the world. Uh, I'm very, very concerned about what the future uh, holds along those lines. We don't have a lot of time, and so I'm, I'm hoping that everyone in this room, I hope I do not have to convince anyone in this room that the subject that we address today is an extremely important one, especially if you're a person who believes that the Bible is the Word of God, believes that you need to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you believe that, then this subject is vitally important to you. And I know as I have become not just a parent, but now a grandparent, I cannot help but think so much more of what kind of world my two darling granddaughters are going to be facing when they seek to live, Lord willing, a, a godly life. I, I am deeply troubled by what I see happening, especially in my own land right now. I'm not sure how many of you are aware of what happened this past uh, week in the United States, but the administration currently in power, and certainly pray for the United States because I don't know what's going to happen after the coming election, uh, but the administration currently in power is, is becoming just downright tyrannical on the level of immorality and, and unethics in forcing uh, certain ways of thinking, not just, not just accepting certain things, but you have to think a certain way and celebrate certain things. It is a very difficult situation we're facing, and we as believers, we cannot respond to these issues with mere emotion. We cannot respond with prejudice. We must respond because we as believers have thought through what the written word of God says concerning the issues of God's purpose in how he created mankind and created us male and female. The days when we could just simply say, well, we're not going to talk about that. My, my grandparents' generation didn't discuss these things. They didn't have to. 
And maybe because they didn't, then other certain positive aspects of biblical teaching may have become de-emphasized. Maybe that's why we're facing some of the things we're facing today. I don't know, but I, I can guarantee you my great-grandfather, as far back as we can trace on my father's side, have been ministers. It probably never crossed his mind that his great-grandson would ever stand in front of an audience and have to address the issue of the LGBT movement. I imagine he never thought about that. Well, that's what we face today. Let's begin with some biblical thoughts together. Psalm 12, the 12th Psalm. may not be the Psalm that you thought I'd go to or a passage I'd go to, but just, just a real basic foundation before we move into a specific text. Psalm 12 records the godly man struggling with the evil prevalent in his nation. And the Psalm ends with the cogent observation, a verse that I have looked to many times as I listen to the news. The wicked strut around when what is vile is exalted amongst the people. Have you ever noticed Psalm 12, 8? Wicked men strut about when what is vile is honored or exalted amongst the people. There was a day when those who engaged in immorality did not want to force that upon everybody else by walking down the streets and saying this is a good thing, but... Here in the, in the psalmist context, in his day, the wicked strut around what is vile is exalted amongst men. But right, be, right before that, in verse 4, verse 4 includes the question on the lips of the rebellious. And here's what they say. Who is Lord over us? Who is Lord over us? Do you not hear that today? Do you not hear that in our society all around me, I hear men and women, especially the millennial generation, saying, who is Lord over us? And when you think about it, if we are being told today that we can self-identify as anything, no matter what the reality of our existence is, we can self-identify as anything, isn't that basically saying that you are God over your own existence? I mean, I would like to self-identify as, uh, as a six-foot-ten forward in the NBA. <laughs> but that's not really going to affect the reality very much of what my current calling in life would be. I'd make a whole lot more money. I mean, if I, if I, I some of you probably don't know the NBA very well, but uh, there's a guy right now named Steph Curry. And man, I'll tell you. I don't know what planet he landed on, but they need to get his alien card from him because he can, he can do things that nobody else can possibly do. Well, I'd like to be able to identify as Steph Curry. I, I mean, he can pretty much demand his own salary. Uh, but I can't put one of those little round balls through a little hoop way over there without almost even looking the way that he can. And so the idea that we can change reality by our simple thought process, by what's going on between, between our ears really is based upon an idea that there is no reality. There is no creator. There is no reality from the perspective of the creator that we, are, that we must submit to. It is a dangerous way of thinking. And yet it's nothing new because even in the olden days, we had those saying, who is Lord over us? Well, we as Christians very gladly proclaim the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord over us, but the rest of our society does not go there. We need to explain why they need to. Now, 
Very quickly, the predominance of unbelieving biblical scholarship has laid the groundwork for revising clear and what I call pan-canonical biblical norms and teachings. What do I mean? Well, the fact of the matter is, in the vast majority of Christian institutions today of higher learning, there is a very low view of Scripture. The idea that Scripture contains divine revelation, well, it may be, but the idea that there's a consistent revelation that we can know and understand and, and, and apply to the situation in our world, sadly, in many, in many places, that's not the case. Uh, when I wrote my first book on the subject of homosexuality in 2001, co-authored the book, I was amazed at how many books had already been published trying to find ways around the key text of Scripture on this particular subject. And in comparison to 2001, <laughs> in the 15 years since then, there has been a veritable tsunami of books that have come out trying to find a way around the biblical teaching on the subject of human sexuality. And the fact of the matter is, if a church or a denomination wants to find a way around this issue, they will find it. And friends, let me tell you something. If your faith is based upon looking out at numbers of people, if your faith is based upon looking out and seeing how many people are doing this and what kind of church is doing that, you're going to have some real difficult times over the next few years. Because big names and big denominations are going to decide this is not a hill to die on. This really isn't a gospel issue, and I am convinced that it is a gospel issue. This isn't really a gospel issue. This isn't a hill to die on. We're just going to go ahead and move past this. And they're going to be aided in that by a huge library of books that have been published, all based upon biblical scholarship that I'll be perfectly honest with you, would not be able to do what we did in this room on Friday evening. If your biblical scholarship won't allow you to defend the Christian message to a Muslim, I don't have a whole lot of respect for your biblical scholarship. And neither do the people living, especially in Muslim countries, as Christians. They don't need your kind of compromise either, unfortunately. But it's out there. It's out there. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of modern hubris in our culture today as well. Especially the millennial generation, young generation, just seems to have the idea that if you didn't grow up with a cell phone, uh, or even an iPhone, an iPad, MP3s, uh, then you could never have really put much serious thought into morality and ethics. I mean, it's amazing what we're seeing around us and how quickly this generation is willing to say that everyone before us, they're all a bunch of bigots, they're all very closed-minded, we're the only ones that have ever been able to figure these things out, and they're rushing to destruction in the process because they don't seem to have much respect for the generations that went before them, and that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Just because we may not have, you know, I, I used to make Jiffy Pop popcorn. Anybody else make Jiffy Pop popcorn? You put it, had it in the thing, and you, you sat there on a, on, a, on a stove, and it made rattling noises. My kids, look at that. We actually found a thing of Jiffy Pop. I, I bought it for them just so they could see it. And they're like, really? You, you couldn't just put it in the microwave? No, you don't put that in the microwave because it'll explode. It's metal. That's not a good thing. But... How long would that take? Oh, I don't know. What was it, four or five minutes, something like that, before it would pop? And they're like, but it's now it's only a minute 30. And it's, it's like, yeah, well, we were more patient back then, you know? And as a result, they look at us and they, they go, you guys, you, what, what, what did you spend your time on? You must not have had time for all the important things, like first-person shooter games and stuff like that, you know? And as a result, 
unfortunately, I find many in the modern generation, I ask them to think through, what about those who came before you? And they have no connection to those who came before them. I hope in England you've got a little more connection to history. You live in the middle of it. I mean, if you happen to read any of the signs and the things chiseled on the walls as you're walking through the streets of London, you can't help but see history. I hope maybe it's not happening as fast to you. Maybe it is. I, 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 I really don't know. The church, normally defined in a vague fashion, we are told, and this is what we're being told by many Christian leaders today, has been wrong on so many things in the past, on the role of women, cosmology, on slavery. So the homosexuality issue, the marriage issue, is just another place where the church has misread the scriptures all along. Some suggest the Spirit is now leading us to think differently than even the apostles, or even as Jesus did. Now, did you hear what I just said? Now, I've, I don't think that this is going to work right. And what I may have to do is I may have to take my uh, uh, microphone off here and play this for you, because I want you to hear this. But I want to play a clip. I forgot to mention this, so it's not the technical people's fault. We'll just, we'll just make this work. This debate took place last October in Phoenix. I was in the audience. I wasn't doing the debate, amazingly enough. Dr. Robert Gagnon was. But this is a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he is making the argument that the church needs to embrace homosexuality and the redefinition of marriage on a theological basis. And the theological basis that he's arguing is that since the early church brought the Gentiles in, and that was a huge change for them, and that required the work of the Holy Spirit amongst them, now the Spirit's working amongst us in the 21st century to bring in our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and to allow for the redefinition of marriage based upon the inclusion of the Gentiles in the New Testament. How many of you have heard that argument before? Just, just a few, just a few. But in the process, and I'm going to see if it comes through. I'm not sure if you have a, any type of audio for that or not. Do you have, do you have audio for that? No? Because HGMI sometimes does that. I'm just going to put this down there, and it's going to work. I'm going to say it's going to work anyways. Listen to what Dr. Kirk has to say. What I'm saying is this, that God is doing something now. That to say we have gay and lesbian, bisexual sisters, brothers, and other siblings is to say God is giving his spirit in a way that we have to see, recognize, and respond to. God is doing this now in the 21st century. It's the time that was given to us. The flip side of that coin is this isn't what God did in the first century. And I might wish, as somebody who's now open and affirming, that God had done so, so that the New Testament evidence might be more explicit. But I would also say it was no more wrong for Paul to be a first century Jew than it's wrong for us to be 21st century Christians. But it might be wrong for us to continue saying the things that Paul had to say as a first century Jew. And it might be wrong for us to say even the things that Jesus probably thought as a first century Jew because it was not in their day that the church was given the gift and the responsibility of responding to the fact that there are 
gay and lesbian sisters and brothers, children of God, right here alongside us. Did you hear that? I, I heard a few gasps. So, uh, because I was, and that wasn't me, though I gasped when I heard it too. So much so that I went up to him during the break and, and I asked him, did, did you say that we should actually not want to think the way Jesus did as a first century Jew? And his response was, well, you, you got to understand, Jesus was just a man. <laughs> and I said, so you don't, you don't believe that you don't believe that Jesus was God incarnate? Well, he says, well, his apostles certainly didn't believe that. And he's teaching at Fuller Theological Seminary. Just so you know where all these books are coming from, okay? Uh, this is the type of situation that we are facing today. Now, this has led to a massive production of literature proposing a wide array of readings of the biblical text that has clearly been the means of allowing many denominations and even today historically evangelical churches to abandon the historic view of same-sex relationships and natural marriage itself. And so I can I could give you right now a half dozen different books that I've read over just the past year of people saying, I led my church to change its views and it's been liberating and so on and so forth and so here's here's why I did it and this type of revisionism is what lies behind that you need all of us need to be convinced of what the biblical teaching is because there are going to be so many that are going to be saying well we've been wrong all along now I believe that we must start with a positive statement of Jesus's authority to define these issues before we talk about anything else. I had the opportunity of being on the Dr. Drew show on CNN in the United States last year. I'm not sure if it was an opportunity. It was more of a trial, but uh, I was on by Skype at first and I flew over for the second, uh, the second uh, program. And you only, you're only given a few seconds. Uh, literally on CNN, if you talk more than 15 seconds, they figure their audience has lost interest. <laughs> That's how long the attention span is. About 15 seconds, oops, switch to somebody else and move on from there. That's sort of the modern uh, period that we live in. And one of the things I tried to do was to, pro to present the idea that Jesus Christ has the right as the resurrected Son of God to define what we are to believe about this issue, and that, in fact, if you're going to put a bunch of psychologists up against the one who made us, you go with the one who made us, not with the psychologists as your ultimate source of authority. Well, obviously, that's not an overly popular position to take. But where did Jesus address this subject? We are told all the time. Jesus never talked about the subjects we're talking about today. He never, he never used the term homosexual. He never addressed homosexuality. He must not have believed that it was important. Well, friends, if we don't think through what we believe about who Jesus was, and if you don't recognize that Jesus spoke much about God's law, there was never a Jewish person in the years before Jesus who had any other view than that of the first century. It was unanimous amongst everyone amongst the Jews what Leviticus 18 and 20 meant, that homosexuality was an act of rebellion against God. It was a sinful thing. 
no one before Jesus, at the time of Jesus, amongst the Jews, or for many, many centuries after Jesus ever had any other concept or expressed any other concept. And so Jesus's view on the subject really isn't arguable. He said, anyone who would teach you to break even the least of these commandments is least in the kingdom of heaven. When he affirmed the righteousness of God's law, he was clearly affirming all of that. And, I, and re, let me remind you of something. If someone says, well, you know, that's just Leviticus 18 and 20. We're going to look at these a little bit later on, but that's, that's just Leviticus 18 and 20. You, you don't want to... You don't want to teach people to be too concerned about all that Old Testament law because you don't keep it all yourself. I was listening to a, a Baptist who has become, quote-unquote, open and affirming, and he was speaking at a conference, and he said, we shouldn't be teaching people to worry about arcane passages from the book of Leviticus. We should be teaching people to love their neighbor as themselves. Does anyone find that odd? Jesus did say, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Where did he get it from? Anybody know? It's Leviticus 19. So you've got Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, and the prohibitions against homosexuality are Leviticus 18 and 20, sandwiched right in between. If you want to get rid of the one, you really don't have much basis for arguing you need to be still believing the other, do you? Jesus obviously did believe what was found in the Old Testament and believed that it remained binding today. But remember this incident. Uh, this is where I go. If, 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 I, if I was on the tube and somebody saw a book I was reading and they asked me a question about this subject and I knew I only had a few, a few stations to be able to say something, this is what I would do. I would go to Matthew chapter 19. And in Matthew chapter 19, right at the beginning, you have the testing of Jesus. Some Jews come to Jesus, some Pharisees, and they come testing him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay, it's nice and short. It's not difficult to understand. It's really something I think most of us could memorize and, and be able to quote to someone. And here's Jesus speaking authoritatively, interpreting Old Testament texts and addressing the relationship of husband and wife, male and female, but how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, remember, and sometimes it's helpful to explain to folks, the context of this particular incident was the conflict between the schools of Shammai and Hillel on the proper grounds of divorce. Now, the school of Shammai said that if you want to divorce your wife, she had to have committed a very serious offense a covenant-breaking offense, something like adultery, maybe idolatry, gone after false gods, et cetera, et cetera, but something extremely serious that impacted the, the very covenant of marriage itself. The Hillelian school had a much different view and, and basically believed that you could divorce your wife for any reason at all. Uh, if any, anything that displeased you in her 
uh, would give you grounds for divorce. And so this argument was going on, and what's happening here is the, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to take sides in the argument that they themselves were having. And so Jesus' answer drives straight to the heart of the matter. The God-ordained, original, creation-mandated purpose and form of marriage. The problem is that we live in a day, well, where most of the people we're talking to no longer share the presuppositions that only a few generations ago were shared by pretty much everyone in the Western world. As Christians accustomed to reading the Word of God, we may miss the foundational truths Jesus' words require for understanding. His first words hold his hearers responsible for the existence of divine revelation and for knowledge of it. He says, have you not read? Have you not read? And here is the, here is the real issue. Here is a, a real problem. Obviously, what is thrown at us today is, well, you're just, you're just trying to force one religious viewpoint and one text of Scripture upon everybody else, and not everybody believes that. We're a pluralistic society, you know. Yes, that's what we're told. But no people can ever exist without having common commitments to what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. And there is a fundamental difference between believing that mankind was created by God, therefore has transcendent purpose, that human life has transcendent value, and believing that you and I are nothing but an accident, a cosmic accident, that we are nothing but space dust, that over long periods of time just happened to organize itself into an extremely complex living being. There is everything different between viewing yourself as the creature of God with honor and dignity in his sight, created in his image, and therefore with responsibilities to him and to your fellow creatures. And the view that the greatest good for you is to get as much of your genotype into the next generation as you possibly can. That's, that's the Darwinian view. That's the world according to Darwin. You get the, you, you, as long as you get the most kids, great. Whatever it takes for you to do that, that's how you do it. That's not really a good foundation for morals and ethics. And yet that's what many of our fellow citizens are left with today. They no longer have a word from God, that God has spoken, that God has defined what is true and what is not true. The phrase, he who created them, reveals the greatest collapse of proper worldview understanding of Western culture today. Western man has no creator. Western man has no creator. Without a creator, you cannot have a purpose. You cannot have anything other than law based upon whatever the current polls say. And aren't we all sick of that? Aren't we all sick of that? It is amazing to see what is going on in our culture today and to see that it leads to emptiness, it leads to moral chaos, and it's because we have no creator. If you don't have a creator, then you are not a creation. And you are not accountable to that creator any longer. Creatorless accidents do not have necessary moral and ethical mandates and constraints. Space dust is just space dust. 
and all the stuff about the value of human life, all the stuff about the value of the human family, the beauty of womanhood and motherhood, the goodness of fatherhood and manhood, all that stuff is just dismissed as a social construct that really has no fundamental meaning. And as a result, I say to you, our younger generation has had so much stolen from them as a result of what has happened in our society. Stolen from them. I know as a young man, some of the greatest things that guided me, that caused me to want to be a better person, to study, to do well in school, was that it was driven into me, it was a part of the very fiber of my being, that God had made me, and God had a purpose in my life, and that I was called as a servant of Jesus Christ to be the best person I possibly could be, to use the gifts that he had given to me. And yet we see in our day, I see young men going into their early 30s without any guidance, without any direction, without any sense of purpose. They live their lives in their parents' basement playing first-person shooter games. That's a dehumanization. It truly is, and there's a reason for it. It comes from the worldview that has become predominant in our day. Now, Jesus directs us to God's intentions and purposes as the only foundation for understanding what is right and how to understand marriage, family, and sexuality. He goes directly to the foundational biblical text without apology. He goes to Genesis 1 and 2. And in some places in Christian education today, you can't go there at all because that's just all mythology anyways. It's all just poetry. Instead, Jesus goes there and identifies these as the very words of God without apology, without embarrassment. He gives us a divine interpretation of those particular texts. And what does he tell us? Well, the gender binary, which we're being told is such a terrible thing today. Oh, such, how, how dare you think that there's just male and female? Well, the gender binary is seen to be central to the creator's purpose. It is good, it is proper, it is to be celebrated and not rebelled against. Now, before someone comes up to me afterwards and says, yeah, but what about people who have Kleinfelter syndrome or, you know, they have an extra X chromosome or there's a damaged... We live in a fallen world. I recognize that such people exist. But you must recognize, A, they are a tiny percentage. Number... Or B, when we do encounter such folks, we should have great compassion in our hearts for them, as we do for anyone who comes who has physical maladies and physical issues. But see, please realize that 99.9% of the alleged transgender movement is not people who have any genetic issues at all. This is not a genetic thing, and yet people will use the teeny tiny proportion of people over here to, to excuse the behavior of the 99.9% .9 over here that don't have that excuse. As Christians, we should certainly be the very first people who want to see anyone who suffers from that kind of physical malady aided, discipled, assisted, but that's not the same thing as giving in to what is fundamentally a self-centered rebellion against God's created order in the vast majority of individuals who embrace that type of lifestyle. 
and I'm going to be unapologetic here, but when I look at Bruce Jenner, and that's who he is, and it looks like, according to recent reports, he's going to be that again. But when I look at Bruce Jenner, I remember him winning the decathlon in 1976. I, I, was, I, I remember that. We were watching because I think it was just four years earlier it had been the Munich stuff with all the terrorists and stuff like that, as I recall. And so everybody was watching closely, and we were excited. Wow, what an athlete. But you know, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. You know what has truly impacted me in looking at this? Bruce Jenner is a grandfather. He's a grandfather. And I'm a grandfather now. And until that happens, you just don't have the perspective that some, that, that, that gives you. If you. I can't explain it to you. Not only do you look further down the road than you ever did before, think more about what the world's going to be like after you're gone because you're not going to be here all that much longer anyways. But I think about the fact that what I do now in my life is so important to what that, those two gorgeous little girls that I have, what they're going to think about me, the impact I'm going to have upon them, it, I cannot even imagine the impact his actions have had upon his grandchildren. You see, this whole idea of human autonomy, I live on an island, I, can ju I just need to do whatever is right for me. That's not how God made you. He didn't put you on an island. He put you amongst other people. He put you in a family. And you have a responsibility before God for how you help those others to fulfill their purpose in God's sight as well. And it's amazing for me to think about how I could ever do anything that would have the kind of impact upon my grandchildren that this man has done simply to fulfill his personal desires. There is a level of immaturity in our day that is shocking. It truly is shocking. I've seen, you've seen the memes, so have I, but this one I'm going to repeat. Seen the memes of the young men who stormed the beaches of Normandy? Americans, Canadians, British, French. And you see them dirty and disheveled and bloody. Many of their bodies floating in the surf. That's 1944. Fast forward to 2016. And now we need safe spaces on universities so people won't be offended by hearing things they don't like. What has happened? What has happened? It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. Worldview means everything. Worldview means everything. God created manhood and womanhood. And ladies, every mother in this place, my mom died six years ago. But I am so thankful that throughout her life, it was so plain to me that she got such great joy from being a mother. She didn't get to do a whole lot else. We didn't have much in the way of money. We didn't get to do much traveling. She didn't have a lot of the world's goods. But I knew one thing. She knew God had called her to be a mother. And she had done it the best she could. And if that's not a beautiful thing to you, you're missing out, my friends. You're missing out. 
You know, terms like husband, wife, father, mother, bride, groom. They're all words with divinely defined meaning. And woe be to any culture and any nation that decides that how God has defined those words isn't good enough for us. Because any definition we're going to come up with is not going to have near the meaning. And it will never satisfy the heart of creatures who, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, are made in his image. We are made in the image of God. And you need to understand, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, we are suppressing that knowledge. We're holding that knowledge down. And man, are we doing that with a lot of effort these days. But you see, it'll never change. The reality is, whether we deny it or not, man was made in the image of God. That's the connecting point. That's the, there's, no, there's no neutral point to try to connect to the world today. Don't, don't, ever, be, don't ever be fooled. There, there are going to be some people who tell you, well, you need to find some neutral point where you can get together with the unbeliever and you can just sort of reason with them there. Folks, how is Jesus described in Colossians chapter 1? For by him were all things made, whether in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, principalities, powers, dominions, authorities, all things created by him and for him. He is before all things, and him all things hold together. That's a description of the creator. Jesus Christ created all things, and that means anything that is a fact is a fact because Jesus made it that fact. And so there is no neutral ground. Any ground I stand on is Jesus' ground. And so don't let anybody tell you that we can have some moral neutral ground we can all get together. Then you say, well, what's the connection between us and the unbeliever then? If we don't have some neutral ground we can go to, it's real simple. Jesus made them too. He made them too. They are made in the image of God. They cannot live consistently in a worldview that rejects the very creator who made them. That needs to be remembered. And so he is the one who has defined such things as husband, wife, father, and mother. Jesus went on to talk about those two becoming one flesh. Now that clearly includes the God-ordained sexual union that results in the creation of life. There's no doubt about that. But it likewise goes beyond solely the physical in light of the Genesis description of the woman as the Eitzer Konegdo, the corresponding helper to the man. I love that description of the woman in Genesis. Eitzer Konegdo. Because it, it's such a... I love the balance of Scripture. Because it differentiates her from the man, but says that she corresponds to the man. Now, I don't know about the rest of you men in the room, but I'm awful glad that my woman, my, my wife doesn't look like me. Um, I could show you pictures. Somehow, I don't remember what happened. Maybe, Phil, you can remember what happened to you, but I don't remember what happened, but my wife got me to sign an agreement sometime early on in our marriage where I would do all the aging for the couple. <laughs> I don't remember it, but that's how it's worked out. That's how it's happened. She still looks like, I can show you pictures. I have a picture of her phone right here. Taken 20 minutes after she said she would marry me. We were both 18. <laughs> 30, 34 years is coming June. 34 years is coming June. And she, she looks better now than she did then and not so much for me. 
But I'm awful glad that she's a woman. I'm awful glad that she's the Aitzer Konegdo to me. Now you might say, well, but, but is there something essentially different there? Yes. Yes. A young man is matured by a woman. There is a... Ne- Look, folks, let me... Uh, I'm jumping ahead here a moment. If there is anyone in this room who experiences same-sex attraction, let me say something to you right now. I do believe that there is a small portion. I do not believe it is anywhere near the majority portion of people who self-identify as homosexuals. But I believe there is a small portion of people who identify as homosexuals who are telling the truth when they say the only sexual desire they've ever experienced is for the same sex. I've talked to certain people like that. And I believe that if a person comes to the church and says, I believe the gospel, I believe I'm a sinner in need of redemption, but I experience these desires... I submit to the Lordship of Christ, I submit to the authority of Scripture, and I ask the church, please help me mortify these desires. They should find the church to be a place ready to help and assist. But let's be honest with ourselves, most of us are extremely uncomfortable at that point. We are. But if they come to us and they are not saying, you need to change for me, I'm willing to change for Christ, all the difference from what we're actually seeing in the LGBT movement that comes to the church and says, no, 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 no. My desires need to define what your gospel is. So you need to change your beliefs, you need to change your scriptures to match my my experience. Do you see the huge chasm that's, that, that exists between those two attitudes? On the one, we should have tremendous compassion. On the other, there needs to be firm resistance. Firm resistance. So, the only way this God-ordained one-fleshedness can obtain is when a man and a woman are joined in marriage. It is simply impossible from a Christian worldview. It is simply impossible in light of the words of the one who created all things, who took on human flesh, who died upon Calvary's tree, rose again the third day, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. It is impossible in his words for two or more men or two or more women to become one flesh in marriage. It's not possible. And for someone to demand that I accept it to be possible is for them to to say that they have a greater level of authority than Jesus Christ himself. And just as every generation of Christians before us in one way or another has had to consider, will I bow the knee to Jesus or bow the knee to Caesar? So we have a decision to make on that level as well. Jesus identified marriage as a divine act. He established it. He gets to define it. There is no veto power. There is no second vote. 
There is no Supreme Court decision that can overturn the triune God. He made us male and female. He's defined it. He knows what's best for us. And we only should prove ourselves foolish when we rebel against his wisdom. Now, very quickly, homosexual activists have identified them as the clobber passages. These are the six passages that without any doubt refer to homosexual activity or practice. They are far better seen as the fence passages, texts that based upon positive biblical teaching, fence human activity. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I've been very honest about this many, many times in my public talks. I did my first master's degree. I graduated from seminary the first time. And even as a graduate, I could not have told you what these six, six texts were. And I'd be interested, how many of you, who haven't watched my presentation before anyways, how many of you in this room feel that you could confidently identify the six, now there's actually more than this, but there's disputation about some of them, but the six passages in the Bible that specifically deal with the issue of homosexuality. Right now off the top of your head, you feel like you'd know all six of them. One? Well, I hope so. <laughs> okay. Now, the fact of the matter is, folks, we're behind the curve because I can guarantee you almost every LGBT activist I know of that's involved in doing anything religious can tell you what all of them are and can probably give you three different interpretations of every one. And we have to keep that in mind. We have to keep that in mind. So what are these six? Well, revisionists, remember the revisionists I was telling you before? Revisionists never, in my experience, seek to weave a consistent, harmonious testimony through the text of the Bible. Instead, they isolate each of these texts so as to provide an alternate, affirming interpretation of each without any reference to the others. So in other words, if you go and get the best books that are out there, or even the worst, there's, like I said, Amazon is filled with them, what they will do is they will go to one text and they'll say, well, it could mean this, or it might mean that, and there's some questions about the meaning of this word, but they won't take that text as it relates to the next one or the next one or ones that came before it. So they'll go to Romans 1, but they won't see that Romans 1 was written in the context of people that were well aware of Genesis 18, 19, and Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. They'll just isolate each one. They'll chop the text of the Bible up into parts. Be careful when anybody does that. Christian truth is found in the whole fabric of Scripture, not just in isolated text removed from their relationship to others. And so that's what revisionists will do. And I don't have time today to go through all the revisionist arguments, but I will mention some of them as we go along. Now, I've already mentioned the two texts in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. I'll look at both of them here in a moment. But here's Leviticus 18, 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies a female. It is toeva, an abomination before God. Now, why did I put on the screen both the Hebrew and the Greek? Well, the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is going to be important because of the fact that the New Testament writers draw from the Old Testament text even their terminology. And one of the key words in the New Testament is actually derived from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
it would be very important for you. And, and I, I did, I'm doing a series of sermons right now called The Holiness Code. I've already covered all these in Leviticus. They're available on Sermon Audio if you'd like to sort of listen to this more slowly and more thoroughly and fully in regards to God's law and things like that. But Leviticus 18 is listing all the things that the nations before Israel did and that because of their having done these abominations, the land spewed them out. So the context of Leviticus 18 is the peoples did this and God judged them and drove them out of the land for these things. Now Leviticus chapter 20 is specific law being given to the nation of Israel and as a result, it has a punishment attached. So rather than talking about the pagan nations and what they did and they're cast out, then Leviticus 20, 13 says, if a man lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both have committed toeva, abomination, they shall be put to death, their blood guilt is upon them. And so in the law, the theocratic law for the nation of Israel, you have a repetition of pretty much everything in Leviticus chapter 18, but now a civil penalty is attached for the people of Israel. Now, there can be no question that throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this fundamental concept remains constant. There is no means of interpreting the prophets or any other way to undercut the teaching because if you read these in their context, these are the same passages that prohibit incest, bestiality, all sorts of other behaviors, child sacrifice. If you're going to say, ah, you know, that was just for the people of Israel, you have a problem at that point in a trying to come up with any type of coherent reading of this. And if you'd like to see exactly how that works, it's next to impossible for us to get any of the leading proponents of homosexuality to debate in the United States anymore. Matthew Vines said that he would, then he wouldn't, and we can't get James Brownson to do it, and, and um, uh, David Gushy won't do it. And so last year, we found a very articulate uh, defender of that position, uh, Dr. Codrington, in South Africa, Johannesburg, South Africa. And so he and I debated last October, and um, the church down there did a great job in recording. It's available on YouTube if you'd like to, to hear how this fleshes out with the other side being presented, because you know I'm sort of big on having both sides. Uh, uh, that's what debates are all about. So if you want to hear from the other side, I'm letting, letting you know how you can do that. And I think very consistently these texts are able to be uh, utilized. The, other, the third of the three in the Old Testament is, of course, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I only have time just to simply summarize this. The constant revisionist response to Sodom and Gomorrah is that all this is talking about is gang rape. That's all it's talking about. The fact that it was just the men, the fact that uh, Lot identifies their desire as an evil desire, and the fact that even once they had been struck blind. Did you ever notice this about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? When you get a chance, read it. One of the most amazing examples of the lust and sinfulness of the human heart is in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because when the angels pull Lot into the house, what happens? The angels strike the men outside blind. Think about that for a moment. You're in a whole group of people, you're trying to get into a house, and all of a sudden the lights go out. What's the first thing you're going to do? 
Hey, hey, I, I can't see. Someone help me. There's a problem. Everybody else around you is doing the exact same thing. Can you imagine the cacophony? Can you imagine what it sounded like? Everyone's yelling out the same thing. It isn't going to take you very long to figure out we have all been struck blind. Now, if everybody is yelling out the same thing, what are you going to do? Uh, I think maybe we should stop doing what we're doing. Might be a good idea, huh? What does the text say? Even after they were struck blind, they wearied themselves trying to find the door. They didn't stop. That's not just inhospitality, let me tell you that. Something a whole lot more than that's going on in Genesis 18 and 19. But those are your three Old Testament texts. Are there other possible references? Yeah, the, the, there may have been temple prostitution in, in 1 Kings and things like that, but those are the three Old Testament texts. The New Testament text, hopefully most of you would have thought of. The key, without any question, is Romans chapter 1. There is no question. But my friends, and again, I don't have time to do a full exegesis of this. I did it at high speed in the uh, debate with Graham Codrington during one portion, if you want to sort of hear how you might want to do it while waiting for the train to show up or something like that, how it can be done very, very quickly. But what you must understand about Romans chapter 1 is that it is a part of a context and flow. And what is being discussed here is not just some random reference to homosexuality. What is being discussed here is what happens when man who's created in the image of God suppresses that knowledge of God and the result in man's experience is a darkened mind, a darkened heart, a twisting of his relationship to creation itself, and in this instance, a twisting within man himself. In other words, sin impacts all of man's experience. There is nothing of man's experience that is not touched by sin. That's the context of Romans 1, 26 through 27. And there can be no question what Paul's talking about. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and that may be the only reference to lesbianism in the Bible. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now again, the number of revisionist interpretations are amazing. And none of us could ever really keep up with all of them. They, they keep coming up with new ones all the time. That's why it's important for you to know the truth of the teaching of Romans 1 so that you don't have to be wasting your time reading all of the foolishness that comes along. As long as you can see it in its context and know what it's actually saying, you know, the old story, you don't train a bank teller to identify fake money by looking at fake money. You train the bank teller to identify fake money by looking at real money. So they know the real thing so well, when they are past a fake, they can recognize it. Well, it's the same thing with truth. If you know the truth really well, when the fake comes along, you'll be able to see exactly why it's fake. And so the more time you spend on the truth and knowing what Romans 1 is actually talking about, 
you'll be able to respond to almost any kind of even perversion of it, even if you have not heard it before. And so I would highly recommend to you, working through Romans 1, start, at, start verse 18. This is the bad news. Paul spends half of Romans 1, all of Romans 2, and half of Romans 3 on the bad news before he ever gets to the good news. But let me tell you something else. Let me tell you something else, folks. Romans chapter 1 is one of the texts of Scripture that convinces me more than almost any other text of Scripture of the inspiration of the Bible. Because all that mankind has written in psychology and psychiatry has never given us a deeper insight into mankind than these few sentences written by the Apostle Paul, but inspired by the Spirit of God. The insights here remain absolutely true no matter what language, no matter what culture, no matter what year, no matter what time. It's an amazing, amazing text. Well, that's one of them. The other two, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 1 Timothy 1, 10. So there's your total of six. And the fundamental issue here is the Greek term arsenokoites. Arsenokoites. Now, why is that relevant? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle gives us what's called a vice list. And there are a number of vice lists in Paul's writings. And here, he mentions these behaviors and says, neither these people nor these people nor these people will enter into the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were justified in the name of the, our God, so on and so forth. So, He's drawing a contrast, and he says to the Corinthians, this used to describe some of you, such were, not such are some of you, but such were. So he's talking about lifestyles here. He's talking about practices. And he uses a phrase, uta malakoi, uta arsenokoitai, or is it, I think arsenokoitai comes first. And there's been a lot of different translations of these texts because malakoi means soft or effeminate. It's the same root that Jesus used when he says there, there are many soft in the king's palaces or many soft things. And some people actually think Jesus might have actually been referring to homosexuals there, but it's, it's disputed. That's why it's not one of the quote-unquote clobber passages. But it means soft. And so many of your translations will say neither the effeminate nor homosexuals when it translates those two terms. The ESV simply says homosexuals and translates both those terms with the one term homosexual. And you might say, well, why would they do that? Well, it was the judgment of the committee that what Paul's referring to there is the active and passive partners in a male homosexual relationship. And so they just translate it by the one term. Now, again, the revisionists will jump all over this and they'll, they'll take you to, to sources four or 500 years after Paul lived to try to say, well, this has to do with 
economic things, and I, I, can't, I can't even keep track of all the alleged possibilities, but there's one little problem. We don't have a documentable use of the term arsenokoites before Paul. There's one possibility, but it's difficult to date that one, so we, we don't have any firm use of this term before Paul. Paul may have coined it himself, or he may have derived it from a Jewish source that had coined it before him, maybe one of uh, the, the, the rabbis in the first century that he was familiar with. Remember, he studied under, under the feet of Gamaliel and so on and so forth. But remember what I said before? I said the key here is the background in Leviticus 18 and 20. If you go back to the Greek Septuagint, especially of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, the root terms, arsenos, man, koiteo, to lie together with, are right next to each other in the Greek Septuagint of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Paul just simply took the space out and put them together. Men who lie with men. That's what he's describing. There's no way around the connection to the Old Testament text here at all. Now, some will try to argue, Dr. Codrington admit, he admitted the, the Old Testament background. He admitted it was there, but said it's irrelevant because that's just part of the cultic law, and the cultic law is no longer relevant to Christians today, etc., etc., etc. But remember who Paul is writing to. 1 Corinthians. Hmm. Remember the Corinthians had some problems. And, in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was that really... Yeah, a tough text about the man who had his father's wife, you know, incest. And Paul tells the Corinthians, you should have known, you should have grieved. Um, Paul, how, how should they have known that? Uh, because it's in God's law? Well, where is that at? Oh, Leviticus 18 and 20. Just a couple of verses away from these texts, too. They should have known. It was right there. Oh, but Jesus never said anything about that. But Paul held the church accountable to what? God's word. God's word. Now, if you're ever speaking with someone, and maybe you can sense by how they're speaking, how they're reacting, that conviction has been born in their hearts. I think Leviticus, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is one of the key passages to go to. Why? Because of that last verse. And such were some of you. You see, one of the main things that the homosexual movement in the United States is trying to absolutely banish is the idea that once, this is, this is what they want us all to believe. Once a homosexual, always a homosexual. Isn't it funny? You've got the freedom to choose to be that, but you don't got the freedom to unchoose it. You notice that? Wow. I mean, it's a dogma. I mean, there are states, there are states in, in the United States that have passed laws that if you're involved in counseling people, you cannot counsel, I think it may be just limited to minors, but eventually it'll be anybody. You cannot counsel anybody about how to get out of that sexual orientation. So if you have a, a young man that comes to a counselor at 16 and says, I'm involved in this lifestyle, but I don't want to be anymore, you have to go, well, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I can't say anything about it, you know. Because the idea that there could be an X 
something means it's a chosen behavior. And so there can't be an X something. There's only one problem. The scriptures say there are X things. There are X people who used to be thieves. There are X thieves. There are X adulterers. There are X angry people. And there are X homosexuals. Not because they just decided to pull themselves up by their bootstraps either. It was because of a supernatural action in their life. Now, I said before, this is a gospel issue, and it is. First of all, we in the church are being told that we can no longer believe what that text says. We have to change the tense of the verb, and I've checked the manuscripts. There's no textual variant here. It's such were, not such are. Can't make an argument against it. But we're being told you need to change that. You need to change that if you want to have government funding. You need to change that if you're going to even have freedom, I think, not too long in the future. You need to celebrate the are, not the were. That's what we're going to be told. That's what we are being told. But you see, to one who's under conviction, these are the very words of life. These are the very words of life. Because it's not saying you did something. It says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. The gospel is a supernatural thing. And that's where the hope lies. That's where the hope lies. My friends... You cannot proclaim Jesus as Savior if you cannot define the word Savior. We say Jesus is Savior. Savior from what? Savior from the power and penalty of sin. Well, when have Christians, believing Christians ever allowed Caesar to come along and say, here's the acceptable things you can call sin, but don't you dare call these things sin. When the church allows Caesar to define those things, the church is no longer bowing the knee to the crucified Messiah, but is now bowing the knee to the governmental authorities. This is a gospel issue, because if we cannot define sin then we cannot proclaim a savior. And the ultimate authorities that we are going to follow is what we must understand in this situation. The pressures that are going to be placed against every single one of us as individuals and against churches as a whole are going to be tremendous. In the West, this has become the weapon of choice of those who wish to silence the Christian faith. And I don't know what's going to happen in the election in the United States in November. I can, tar- I can guarantee you one thing. I just want it to be over with. <laughs> I have election fatigue like you wouldn't believe. It seems like it's been going on 20 years now, 2021, something like that. feels like it. But I'll be perfectly honest with you, I... Unless God does something that I can't even begin to foresee what it would be, 
I can't see a positive outcome right now. I can't. And the results are going to be, in our system of government, there's this thing called the Supreme Court. And it has become the all-powerful oligarchy. There's just a few people, you know, uh, in robes that rule our nation now and can make law and so on and so forth. And I don't trust either of the major candidates to, to put up meaningful people. And so that last bastion holding back the waves, I think, is going to be done with. And many of our freedoms are going to be done away with. And many Christian educational institutions are going to have to find a very, very different way of doing what they've been doing. And I think the smart ones have already been trying to figure out how they're going to do that. But it's going to be happening faster than you, you can imagine. I don't know what your situation here is. I know you've got this vote coming up, and I know that uh, you know, the EU's been pushing certain things. I don't know all the dynamics. I'll, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, I think I'd probably find that more interesting than most of what Donald Trump has to say. But um, I don't know what the future holds. All I know is this. Right now, as I look, I see a tremendous push using this as the means of seeking to restrict the freedom of Christians to present the gospel by identifying it as some type of hate speech or bigotry. And you must remember the early Christians under the Romans were a despised people. They were called atheists because they denied the existence of the gods. And they were despised people. If you wanted to be in the upper crust of Roman society, the best way not to do that was to become a Christian. And for a long time in Western society, Christians have been able to hold the highest offices and be esteemed by the people. What's going to happen? And that's no longer the case. What's going to happen when your ability to make money is going to be impacted by your faith? When only lower class jobs are going to be available to you? See, we already have brothers and sisters in the world. They live that reality every day. We may be learning from them not too far in the distant future. But you and I have to be convinced. We must be convinced that our standing is because we've been called to stand as salt and light in this world. The scriptures say, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Salt and light. Salt slows decay. It preserves Light, you need to, to be able to move about in the darkness, to know how to get out of danger and which direction to go. It's a lamp to the feet. If we are called to be faithful to Christ in a society where there is great darkness and great decay, what's that going to require of each and every one of us and as the body of Christ together? It's going to bring great pressures upon us, my friends. Many people who have professed to be Christians just because it's sort of easy to do, they're going to fall by the wayside. 
you're going to see a wave of apostasy. And you're also going to be tempted to compromise on fundamental truths of the Christian faith, of the Christian faith, so that you will then be able to get along with more people. Because as we get smaller and smaller, the pressure is going to be, well, yeah, that justification thing, is it really important? Does it really matter? The pressures are going to come upon every single one of us. Every single one of us. And so I hope that in the brief time we've had together, I've at least been able to give you an overview of what you need to be thinking about. But I hope this isn't where you stop. There are good books. They're in the minority. But there are good books on these subjects. Listen to the debates. Take the time to think these things through because the world may well be asking you for a reason for why you stand where you stand. And we want to be able to give that reason in such a way that is honoring to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we have opened your word today, we have been reminded once again that you are our creator and our maker. You are our sustainer. You've given us your truth. We thank you for preserving your word down through the ages. But Lord, you've called us to serve in a day where many around us find your gospel to be offensive. And as a result, they've embraced lifestyles that are not life-affirming, but they're actually life-destroying. And we want to be able to show them proper and true love by speaking the truth to them. And so, Lord, always help us to have our words tempered by the reality that we are redeemed sinners ourselves, that we are dependent upon grace. But at the same time, may that grace then empower us to be bold in the proclamation of your truth, convinced of the sufficiency of your word and its truthfulness. And so, Lord, as we have opportunity, use us indeed to be salt and light. If there be any in this place that has not bowed the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, may be the, this be the day you reveal yourself to them where they may understand that Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior of sinners. May they turn to him in repentance and faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.